Can I call you Luke? Yes, of course you can. All right. I have to tell you a story immediately because it's been killing me all day. Mm. Do you remember Donna Pascal? Sure. As a matter of fact, she I met her through my, I don't know, how do I put the ex-brother-in-law? That's exactly Bates, how. Friends, we say. I'd see her over his pad like 35 years ago or something like that. That's exactly correct. She's a very lovely person, as I remember. She is a lovely person. So I get a call from Donna today. Donna's mm -hmm. a friend, of, good friend of mine. I love Donna. She says, for those of you, everybody knows, Donna's Saturday Night Fever, brilliant actress. Sure. So, so okay, so she's really good friends with Robert Hayes, your ex-brother-in-law. She says that when I you guys- I saw him the other day where it's not like it was a bad vibe or nothing like that. No, 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 no. This is this is a good story. This is a happy oh, okay, story. Yeah. I'm just saying, I Bob know. and I are cool, man. I love Bob. I would throw you under the bus. First, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I would throw you under the bus. I'm not going to do that to you. So, all right. So you guys, your kids all were about the same age, and you used to have crazy birthday parties for your kids. Do you yeah. remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had crazy birthday parties. So one of them was a Toy Story birthday party. Does that sound vaguely familiar? There was a Toy Story oh, birthday man, party. You're, you're going to start asking me memory questions. Okay. So you don't problem. have to remember. So anyway, you're sitting. But, with... Yeah. Am I, I'm sure something of that, of that, you know, like yeah. that would go down. Yeah. So you're sitting with Donna and Arnold and um, she says, I can't believe this. Look at this. There's like, there's Buzz and Woody. And you, she said, without taking a breath, without missing a beat, just said, I love a good party with Buzz and Woody. <laughs> and to this day. I was still drinking back then. You were. I but mean, it was 30 some odd years, 30 years ago or something like that. You know, Jake's what got to be. Well, my, my oldest son is 36. Jake's like 34 or something like that. There you go. It was a long time ago. So since you brought it up, so let's talk about that. So I didn't know that you don't partake of the... I'm, God, I'm reading God your book. Took, God took my drink tickets away about 14 years ago. <laughs> he so said it was time to stop. And I uh, just finally stopped. You know, it's, did you have did you have a defining blood. incident? Did you have like a bottom? Did something happen? Yeah, man, I felt like shit all the time, and and one, I I got so bad that I was starting to drink the hangovers away, and that's when you know. So and I, and I was like, you know, I you know, I snuck out in my garage at ten in the morning, and my then wife, ex wife now, and we're cool, we're pals, we got two great kids, um. Um, she caught me. And I, like, I had a bottle. I mean, I didn't fuck around. I mean, I went right for the ice cold, absolute, right out of the bottle, big fucking, and I glugged it as if it was like a cold soda on a summer day. And as I took the last tug, I got a cigarette in my hand, and my ex-wife standing there as I closed the it was right out of a movie. You close the door and there's a face there. And she goes, So it's come to this, right? I was like, and it really hit me like a ton of bricks. This is what I've become. And I had been feeling it sneaking up on me. You know, it all starts out really innocent, fun when you're kids and young, young rock and roll, woohoo, let's party every night. And you can hang with it in your 20s and 30s and shit, but you hit a wall with it at some point. You know, some of I, I just, I didn't, I couldn't, it, it, it runs in my family. My mother died from it. There's a lot of people that have messed up in my family because of it or died from it or some related 
aspect of it that messed up the family in one way or another. And I'm no different than any other family on planet Earth. We all have every ism in every family, so everybody kind of knows what it is. There are various degrees of it. It's not my prouder, prouder moments. And, you know, it started to affect everything in my life in a negative fashion. And I felt terrible and it was time. I stayed at the party too long. I can't hear you now. You just turned something off. Ah, uh, I'm sorry. What Was it hard to stop? No, I hit the wall so hard that it scared me. And, you know, I didn't go away or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've been to a lot of meetings. I've been to, you know, I have a, a, my... I want to. I I kind of checked myself in at one point during the pandemic because I was uh, misusing. Uh, <laughs> this is fucked up. Uh, antidepressants, and I, like any good drug addict or alcoholic, <laughs> one makes you feel good. Let's. What happens if you take five? Yeah. And as I had nothing to do, I was influenced by some very bad people at that time. I had nowhere to go, nothing to do, no prospects. My depression was on fire, and fear. I have an autistic son that couldn't get the vaccine. I didn't know if he was going to die, you know. So I mean, you know, I mean, it, I, if he did get sick, so I mean, it was, and there were some dark people around me at the time, which I'd rather not discuss. And I got, I fell into something that I shouldn't have done, you know. And I was kidding myself because it was prescription, and it was like, oh, great, do this, and then I started to need more. To just. It was just a bad thing, man. I fucked up. What can I say? And I caught myself and I checked myself into a place for a month voluntarily. And it was very cool. And I and I got a lot out of it. And I saw some really sad things, sad mm -hmm. people. And I met some really wonderful people who I'm still in touch with. And, you know, um, you know yeah, as long as you don't hurt yourself, however you get there is on your own. I've been to the meetings on the beach. I've, most of my friends are AA or AA related or ex drunks or the people just stopped, you know. Right. It's a certain age where it's kind of when you see you're either dead or in fall, AA, kind of. Well, you yeah. see a fallen you know, 20 year old kid falling down the bar, you go, ah, he's just a kid. But if you're 50, it's not cute, you know. What I mean? <laughs> it became, I was some, I had a lot of other internal issues that I worked through. Anyway, I met a fantastic shrink there who's not only my doctor but he's my dear friend and uh, we talk two three times a week and he's got 35 years he's an addiction expert he's a wow. cat and i and i can uh, barf out my sins to him without going to these meetings where everybody knows me and i don't really want everybody to know about my deep dark ugly shit you know but yeah know how great and wonderful wonderful organization is and how many people it's helped uh, and like I said, and I've gone, I've done, I, and I socialize. Nobody I know is getting fucked up at this point. You know what I mean? You know, even my kids are straight. I was just going to say, how about your kids? Are your kids? Um... My oldest daughter had a little run in with alcohol, but she fixed it. Excellent. You know, she saw her grandmother die from it. She saw me kind of messed up from it. You know, when they were teenagers, they kind of cracked up at old dad, you know? Mm -hmm. Old, what's wrong with dad? <laughs> dad. <laughs> Dad was fine until he got off the couch. He didn't realize he drank four <laughs> bottles of wine watching television, you know. Well, there's no problem, nothing to see here. <laughs> I get up to I get up to give him a hug and I fall on the ground. I go, oh fuck. And they go, oh dad, man, what's up? 
did you did you ever do anything on stage did did you ever like fuck up on stage because you were loaded well i drank towards towards the you know there's parts of my career where i was on stage fucked up and i'm very ashamed of that did it ever cost you professionally like you're a session guy you did i never i never i never missed a gig because of it but i mean I play, uh, I, there's a couple of performances I wish I could uh, erase. And, you know, thanks to the miracles of the internet, you know, the more you hate something, the more people want to put, leave it up there because they get more hits and they make money off their, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, they, at the cost of people's humiliation, it's like that whole TMZ shit. You know, I've been accused of shit on TMZ. I never did. Do you think they retract it? Who gives a shit anyway, you know? Um, but you know, that's not my life. I mean, I'm a piece of love, you know. I I have the greatest life ever, you know. My kids you know, are great, everybody's talking... healthy. I can't, you know, I can't, you know, what can I say? I heard you talking on uh I don't know whose show it was, and you were saying that the the pandemic was like the, a really dark time for you, but you One didn't say why. Life. I mean, if if people talk about retirement, so what, you sit around and do nothing like that, no way. I tried retirement, I'm allergic to it. But you're, but you're a songwriter. Come on, we don't retire. We love our gigs. Right, but you, but you're a songwriter. You, you record. What, what did you do during the pandemic when it was locked down? I made a couple records actually. Yeah, you did. You know, both of them went double plywood. (laughs) You're. I gotta say. Bridges is on heavy rotation in my kitchen, and I have to. No, I got. I got. Before that, I found the sun again. Was like. For me, I did I did the whole record in eight days, live solos, live everything. I overdubbed the vocals. It was done in eight days. I did that one for me, long-winded jam solos, kind of like my what it would, would have been like for me to be at Electric Ladyland in 1969, but it was like 2000s. That was fun, and then there was that was like days before the lockdown. Boom, done. So thank God I got that one done. And about the end of the second year, when I realized the lights were going to go back on and we could do something, I had a couple months. I wanted to do something different. I got together with some of the old Toto guys, Joseph and Joseph Williams and David Page, and I brought in some of the cats that haven't played in a long time, Simon Phillips and Shannon Force, who's coming back. And, um, you know, just my old friends, you know, just did it. Let's go make a shameless 80s record because nobody else is doing it. And we did it. And then, you know, it, it got great reviews, did great. You know, I did a lot of streams and shit, but. You know, I you know my heart belongs to like you know keeping the band of and the Toto and the music alive, and you know it's which you're doing really brilliantly, well. and we're going to like talk a, about that. But I want to know when I can come see you play this stuff. I mean, I know everybody wants to hear the hits. I want to hear you play this. I mean, the, oh well, shit, I don't know if I'm going to get out to do that anytime soon oh, because I got come a full on. year. It's you wrote a couple Ringo, sexy you know? songs here. There's a well, thank you. I mean, take like my said, love is sexy. We we did it to scratch the creative itch because you don't make any money doing it. I spent all the money making the record. Oh, all right. So we, you, you talk a lot about Elton in your book, and you were saying how you watched Elton get some um, some lyrics one day, and he just sat down and started writing the music. It was one of I the mean, most come- astounding things I've ever seen. And I've always been a huge Elton fan from the first record to present day, and I had the great honor of working with him on a few of those albums. Mm. And my first one, I was—I had just turned 21 years old. James Newton Howard brought me over to 
France and we went up and we were record. We were the next band in after Pink Floyd recorded the tracks for the wall. So it was like with Clive Franks and uh, me and James Newton Howard and Elton. We lived in this house for a couple of weeks. It was magic. Jesus. I, I absolutely adored every second of it. They treated me like a king. Uh, Elton couldn't have been more wonderful, gracious, and loved all the things that I did. He tried to get me in his band when it was all over. And I had to say no. I'm like, you know, and then like years later, he said, you know, you made the right move. But I, but I said, do you understand how honored I was? I mean, how hard it was. I've had some unbelievable offers over the years, but I mean, the band was just getting started. You know, we're on our second album, you know, and I couldn't do that. You know, I, I wouldn't do that for my high school brothers who gave me a chance. Jeff Picaro and David Page started my career. And I should argue, I should say Steve Picaro, who if I wasn't met for Steve Picaro in high school, was in his band. I would have never met those guys. I don't have a different life. So I owe an awful lot to Steve, Mike, Jeff, and David Page, um, and Mr. and Mrs. Picaro for letting me hang around their house, you know, in high school and suck up the fact that, like, this is what the tools you're going to need to be a studio player. And I was able, we were all studying music in high school, and it was all we did, you know. And then that, that inspiration and that training time, I could never, you know... I got an inside glimpse. I mean, Jeff Picaro was in Steely Dan when we were in high school. You know, Snuffy and I flew to Denver to see Steely Dan with the Eagles uh, last month. And we get there, no Steely Dan, COVID. Um, no well, Steely I'm not, I'm Dan. I'm not any information other than I, I had heard that uh, Donald wasn't, uh, wasn't feeling well. And I wish him well because he's one of my all-time, him and Walter, Steely Dan. That's soul music, you know, second only to the Beatles, you know, because I mean, in terms of uh, songwriting and, and and that sort of thing, you know, they just hit me hard because it's, in high school we virtually became a Steely Dan tribute band. But then you had like five seconds where you were almost in Steely yeah, Dan. Yeah, it was. You it, tell, it was so tell the story. Uh, the Silk Degrees tour mm-hmm. with Oz in 1977, um, and. There was rumblings of a Steely Dan were going to go out, and Jeff Picaro was going to do it. So we were putting off starting our first album, if that was going to happen. And then Irving took a shine to me, God bless him, and talked to Donald Walter. I think Jeff put in a good word for me. And they came down to one of uh, unknowns to me, came down to a boss rehearsal and, and heard me play. You know, I was just 19 at the time, and Irving took a shine to me, and he says, hey, do you want to go out with Steely Dan? <laughs> I go, are you sure that I'm the right guy? You didn't. <laughs> well, because, I mean, this is my hero, Larry Carlton, Jay Gray, Ray Parker, you know, the, the list goes on. All, you know, Denny Diaz, Jeff Baxter, um, Walter, incredible guitar player, you know what I mean? Uh, stylistically very unique, and... You know, all the guys, Hugh McCracken, uh, Elliot Randall, I mean, who played on Real in Years and stuff. Yep. I mean, they're, they're, the list of incredible guitar players, Rick Derringer, I could go on and on. These I studied these records, and I loved them. I learned. So Dean Parks, one of the greatest of all time. Uh, like I said, I'm forgetting cats, but I don't mean to do that. But those, those records all the way up, through Donald Fagan's um, Nightfly, which is a Desert Island album one. Uh, and I love all the stuff since then, but those, you know, from Can't Buy a Thrill up to that, which were the first album up to that, 
it just doesn't get any better. Yeah. You know, I was supposed to see Elliot Shiner for dinner tonight, man. He's the guy that mixed all those, Greg, or most of them, Greg. Bill Schnee is still a great friend of mine. These are the best of the best old school. Al Schmidt, bless his soul. One of my mentors and heroes worked with us until the four. We did a million records together. Taught me a lot of stuff. You know, with Total Four, when he engineered us, I mean, he was just showed me so much of the old school way of doing, moving a microphone instead of EQing and just was patient with me. We had a blast working together. I, all those guys, George Massenberg, you know, we've been working with some of the Miko Bowes, best engineers you can get, you know. Greg Ladani, God bless his soul. These are names that, you know, Snuffy would, and, and, the, and the cats my age and all know. I don't haven't done sessions really in God, 30 years. I kind of stopped like when I was about 36. What 30, what made you become old. a session musician as opposed to just a tour? Why, why were Toto session musicians as opposed well, to just a we touring band? Really, we were kind of a high school, two generations of a high school band. Jeff and David <laughs> had one called Rural Still Live. Mm -hmm. Horns is more like a Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs, and Englishman band in, in 1972 and three. And then when I met Steve Bacon in 1974, Jeff was already out. Jeff and David Page. You know, they were already working on Steely Dan records and doing Seals and Crofts and doing all these cool records at the time in the mid 70s. And, you know, Jeff played us the rhythm tracks to Katie Lied before it came out. We were playing those tracks. And, you know, we love Steely. And our high school band was myself and Michael Landau on guitar, who's been friends, my best friend since I was 12. Uh, Steve Carl, John Pierce on bass, who's my first mm -hmm. friend in life. He's now playing in Toto. He was in Huey Lewis in the news for 30 years, top studio bass player. And we had Steve Pico on keyboards, Carlos Vega on drums. We had three great singers, Charlie, Laurie, and Gina. And Jeff and David Page would come play at our high school gigs. Unbelievable. Like we played we were played like, you know, 80% Steely Dan and then everything else, you know? <laughs> you know, because we love that stuff, you know? And so listen, that was the whole idea. And then you know, David's father, famous jazz arranger, producer, um, and then Joe, uh, Joe Picaro, who was top mm -hmm. ball studio, you know, studio key, uh, percussionist. And these are the kind of people that were hanging around. And Jeff and Dave used to come down to our high school rehearsals instead of hang out. And first time I played with Jeff, my face could have cracked off. I was smiling so hard. I know this is the <laughs> drummer I've ever heard in my life. And Carlos Vega was incredible. And we lost him at a young age, and he was one of my soul brothers. And he would have been like heir apparent, you know, to Jeff. And he was doing great, you know, at the time of his untimely passing. But hey, man, you know, in this life, doesn't you know, the older I get, the less sense it makes. Anyway, I can't even believe I've still been doing this this long. You know, I'm like headed into my. I started my first union session when I was eighteen, nineteen seventy six. What yeah. was your first session? There was a guy named Phil O'Kelsey. <laughs> the record never really, you know, did nothing, but it was my first time in it. We recorded it in Studio 3 at Western, which is now East West, where they cut Pet Sounds and where all those legends, all of a sudden I'm sitting in that studio doing my first, and I saw the trunks of all my here, Larry Carlton and Jay Gray, and all these guys are in the hallway. And, and I here I was, the dream. I could smell the room. I could call, you know. I wanted to live in this place. This is how I wanted to live my life. And I met all those guys, you know, talk about geographically placed well. 
And, you know, I just got into the, I was playing with Jay Gruska, legendary writer, mm -hmm. uh, composer for television. You talked about Gary Stockdale. Did he? Gary Stockdale. Gary's a good friend of no, mine. He gave me one. I was still living with my parents. And I was, <laughs> you know, and like the whole deal was like when you're 18, out, you know, okay, you want to do this musician thing, you better be making money at it. And, and God bless my parents. They paid for music lessons. And I was taking like five different lessons at once, plus studying private, plus playing in five bands. How did you know that you should... And then taking music in, in, in high school. How did you know that... What made you go from just fooling around after you heard the Beatles to like really learning your craft? I was dead serious about being in a band when I was 11. I was making money at it. and uh, But I, not just I, to play. I ever, no, I didn't take it as a hobby. This is my life. My parents used to like take away the stereo and the guitar when I fucked up. You know what I mean? They didn't just do nothing. Can't I just <laughs> you had to punish you. Dead, man. Come on, we get over the pain. I want to practice. You know, <laughs> Or I'd be lifting up the needle to learn a, a Clapton solo or a Hendrix or Jeff Beck. And I'd play the same shit over my own man. If you play that one more time, I swear. <laughs> Speaking of which, I wanted to ask you doing. that. But, you know, everybody sort of had either either people are like a Clapton or a Beck. And I know you've played with both of them. You're playing to me. I'm a Beck personally. I love Clapton, but no, Jeff, you're playing Jeff, to me. Hard. I produced a record on him that never came out, sadly. It was really good, too. It was Mono Cache, Pino Palladino, Tony Hymas wrote the material. We did it on Dave Gilmore's studio in the Thames in England. And right in the middle of it, he went techno and doesn't want to do the record we were doing. So I never wow. got a chance to finish it. Wow. It was some really, I'd love to get a hold of it and finish it. But, you know, I don't know. He, you know, Jeff was very funny about stuff he did, unreleased stuff. He was like, burn it. You know, it's like, <laughs> Jeff, don't burn anything. And then some other weird shit went down with his ex managers who ripped him off and, like, you know, mm. so tried to blame me for it. It was very weird. It got very strange for a minute. But then I saw Jeff. Last year, thank God, I got, you know, I'd seen him a couple times, but I mean, I saw him then last year at a festival that we just happened to both be on, big outdoor fest festival in France. I got to spend a few minutes with him, and Johnny Depp was with him. Was a beautiful cat. I love Johnny Depp. Humble. I got to see a show that they did. man, you know, just was like, you know, he comes up and he's like, hey, man, you know, I know I shouldn't be out there with him. I go, stop it. You're fucking, I, I see how much fun you guys are having. He's still Jeff Beck, and you bring some party, man. Come on, man. Don't be, you know, he was a really lovely, humble guy. Sweet. And I dig him, and I dig where he's coming from, man. I think he was a musician before he was ever an actor. At least that's the way he carries himself, you know? We saw that show about three weeks before Beck died, and... Uh, God, Jeff was playing so good. Too. He was so Great. And he was having so much fun. He was having so much fun. It was one yeah, of the best concerts good. I've ever seen. It made me happy to see him happy. Uh, we got my uh, last my last interaction was a hug and love you. See you later. Let's get together. And next time you're in LA or I'm around. It was cool, you know. It was okay, so oh, so going back. Bad. He felt bad that I got accused of something I didn't do. Mm. So, you know, with him, it's, a, you know, I don't want to talk for him. He's not here to talk for himself. God. There you go. I miss right, him so terribly. Go and I, but you know what? You know, it, you know, the strangest thing happened to me. The day after he passed, which obviously I was crushed. And I was like, I didn't, nobody saw that coming. Yeah. Because he was always a pistol. You know, he was always like. He, the shape he was in 
Oh my God, his body. Yeah, I mean, he's just, you know, he's Jeff Beck. What can I say? They, God gave him a little extra, you know. <laughs> There's certain guys that God gave a little extra to, and he a was a little extra. Them, you know? Yeah. And uh, I saw it because I got to sit in the studio and see exactly mm. the process and everything. And it was really one of the greatest times of my life. And working with all the people involved, it was really a lot of fun and, and very. He was a hard guy to please, but at the same time, we got some great stuff. And who knows? I, I'm not in control. His uh, his wife's a lovely person, and you know, I'm I'm backing off any of this. If anybody came to me and said, "Hey, do you want to finish something?" I would consider it only if I had, uh, you know, the permission, the blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Sondra would have to say, "Hey, I want you to do this." You know. Otherwise, I, I I don't want anything to do. I'm not here to like glom on to Jeff at all. I just had I mentioned the experience because it was a high point in my life because he's one of my all time ultimate heroes. You, know? you you have you have a soulful thing about you that reminds me of Jeff. Depends on who you ask. <laughs> i don't know man you know i am what i am sometimes i'm a bit much for people so because i i can be as i've gotten older absolutely so when i'm since i've been sober um i i don't tend to, to make a big here i am spectacle of myself you know out of <laughs> deep insecurity which is all based on anyway um please like me please like me i'm so paranoid about myself so let me make an asshole out of myself so you might like me and I realized that was a bit overkill. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to get into it. I mean, therapy's really helped me, man. This guy, Jason, my buddy, my doctor, my he's brilliant because he he just we get to the heart of the matter, and then he has a way of he's making it friendly, like he actually cares about me. You know? He's not like oh, oh whoop, your time's up. I know I made your <laughs> freaking crack into a million pieces, but our time's up this week. <laughs> That's the kind of shit that would make everybody go like this to every possible therapist. Because they're a great therapist and great therapies, great help to anybody, whether you think you need it or you don't, because we've all got pent up childhood crap and everything that made us who we are today has affected us, even to the point of why do I drink too much? Well, my mother died from it, and that was pretty sad. Because her father was a raging alcoholic. And on my father's side, there was issues too. So it was like, I was going to... Now, my my sister didn't get that. And many mm -hmm. in, in cases of other people that can uh, have an alcoholic brother or sister. But like, for example, my son, my oldest son, Trev, he can drink like a gentleman. Mm -hmm. And my oldest daughter, when I would get stupid, you know, and it was scary for me because I didn't want her to go down the path of my mother. But now she's been sober for five years trying to have a baby. It's all great. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have talked down at school. I'm not mentioning any names, but you know. And, and my younger kids are great. You know, I have a, a daughter in high school, and then I have who's a straight edger, skating, A plus student, never done a wrong thing in her life. I keep asking who the father is, but you know, <laughs> so now, okay, so for you. The, the, you're talking about the insecurity and everything. The music came because, okay, by the way, I didn't mention your book, The Gospel According to Luke, which we were talking about before we came on the air. And I'm, oh, there, I'm was, there, was some, uh, there were some Christians that were very upset with my title. 
I'm I a bet Christian. there were. I'm proud to be a Christian. I don't walk around with a flag beating everybody <laughs> with a Bible or nothing like that, but I find a great deal of comfort in God and everything, Jesus and everything that goes with it, because we live in some pretty dark times. Now, you can take that for what you want. I'm not a preacher. I'm just saying it's given me a great deal of comfort and helped me through a lot of hard times in my life. Particularly. Your book is not preachy at all, though. Your book is so straight. No, man, I make a butthole out of myself. What are you talking well, about? Well, as I was telling you before we came on the air, you know, I, I know a little bit about it, the subject, and and it's just a wonderful book. It I absolutely cannot put it down. I, well, I really I mean, intended to, like to skim it. You know, it. I was so nervous. It was like, oh, God, everybody's going to hate it. And I'm not a writer. They're going to pick me apart like buzzards. Mm -mm. And for the most part, I got great. I got five stars in Amazon. It's you know, fantastic. Yeah. How long did it take you to write it? Three years. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty. I'll never swift. do it again. <laughs> you don't have to do it again. One you and did done. it now. But so one and done. One but and so done. It's... Happy endings. Good reviews. Made a you know made a couple dollars to get rich, but I did it. Don't have to do that. And people go, do you write another book about this? Nah, man. Another three years of my life. You know. No, you did it. You told the story. I just did it. I did it for one reason. Every English teacher I ever told me told me I was a bum in school would right? walk by and see me. <laughs> and I, yes, and number one bestseller. <laughs> well, the guy you kicked out of remedial English. Don't you love it? I had I pulled a great scam in high school, man. How I got through high school. Yeah. Because I was studying music so much, it was encompassing my whole day. I would only I would cut school and then go to the music classes in school. Because in 12th grade, all we had was like four music classes, and then I, the rest of the day was done. So I figured out in 12th grade, because I was working, and I was also studying music, that if I paid my sister money, she could do my homework and my and my term papers. And how I got in the idiot classes <laughs> to be able to cut was they give you the Iowa placement test at the beginning. Oh, of the I remember year. those. And I purposely failed it, so they put me <laughs> in the idiot classes. So I could cut school... <laughs> Not do anything, have my sister turn in the homework, and I ace the test because it's like, you know, three plus five is fucking, you know, eight, you know. Okay. And finally, the teacher got hip to it. So I'd get it, I'd fail everything. I mean, I, I'd get an A, but I'd get a C because I was gone oh so many hours. Now, my mom was kind of hip to it. My dad was behind the cameras and television and films. So we'd be on the road all the time. And my grandfather, too. But I had no interest in any of that. Long story short, I had worked out and I had my own phone because my dad was pissed off. I was getting a lot of work calls on his phone where he got his work. And these are all rotary phone days. So he says, I'm going to give you a phone. I was going to say, you didn't have a cell phone. Tonight. There wasn't a cell phone. And he goes, yeah. you put this in your room and you have your work calls go through here. And I don't want to hear any of your, you have your friends and just leave my phone alone. Yes, sir. I figured this is great. So I had my friend sign the emergency card who works in the office. Then that's what they check the signatures with. And I gave him the phone number of my phone. I just unplugged the phone. So when they called to see if I was there, I wouldn't, they would just ring it forever. Wow. Get my buddy to write me a plane. You know, I was at the doctors or whatever. I had a whole scam figured out. And I, and I ended up graduating high school for my mom. The clincher, I was one credit short. So I said, you got to go to summer school. I went, summer school. So I took beginning folk guitar. <laughs> the first idiot move I make is I go in there, you know, 
obviously I've been playing and you start playing you know, 14 years or whatever already. I'm <laughs> studying music, and these guys are struggling to play an E chord. Lots of girls in the class. So of course I'm in there and I start shredding like you know to impress the girls. And all of a sudden I get one of these from the what are you doing in here? And I looked at the guy, and this, he was a very cool guy, Mr. Neil. He was he was the guy that introduced me to Steve Bacaro, actually. He was a musician. Wow. And, but he knew me from the school and all this stuff, and, and he goes, what are you doing in here? And I go, I'm one credit short, man. <laughs> Summer school, come on. He goes, what are you studying right now? And I said, here's my books. And I showed him what I was studying, and, and uh, boy, boy, he goes, all right, man, here's what's going to happen. You're going to come here, and it's a three-hour class. You're going to spend three hours in that rehearsal room working on your studies. You're going to show it to me at the end of the day, and you're going to do a little recital at the end of this thing and play and sing, and I'll pass you. He was very cool, and he did that for me. How cool is that? And I graduated high school sitting in the cap and ground gown for my mom and dad, because my mom was not going to have me be in a high school dropout. Good for her. Although I kind of dropped out twelfth grade. <laughs> Although you were kind of like you were kind of like a hoodlum. I I was reading in your book about a what? The, uh, well, you were like stealing ice cream and pizzas out of the back of trucks. Well, come and you, on, I was just you know nineteen late sixties, early seventies, mischievous young boy. See, there's no self. We created a lot of havoc because we could disappear. What do you mean? I mean, we could disappear from the morning till the streetlights come on. And my parents had no light. We were in the hood somewhere. There was a lot of kids. There was three or four bands in the neighborhood. And we all hung out. And we there was a burger joint and a taco joint. You know, And drinking Boone's Farm, which I remember well. Well, you know, you know, we started in with the Strawberry Hill and the beers about 14 years old. You know. It was, so, it was my, you know, bad Mexican weed and shit like that, you know. But you didn't really like pot. Pot was my drug of choice, like but pot. you didn't really and like Jeff pot. Carl yeah. taught me how to smoke it again when I was 20. <laughs> I had a very weird experience when I was young in the black. What's that? When I was 14 years old. Well, I couldn't get high from it. You know, the first time when you smoked. Back in yeah, the old yeah. days, the weed was crap. You know? Dirt weed, yeah. 10 bucks for a fine finger lid, remember? <laughs> Um, you know, and my friends were into it, and I was kind of like, Well, I wasn't really into it, but I'd, I'd try it, and nothing happened. And one day we were sitting in there, and, and they built a, a, a bong, a water pipe out of a small kegger of beer. And yeah. one of my boys smoked the whole joint in one hit. I cropped up, we were listening to like James Gang Rides Again, and we had Black Light Room, and it was all, all of our buddies, all those cool posters. and you know, we were, my buddy's mom had eight kids, but he was the eighth kid, so she didn't care at this point. Uh, so we were, had our own thing, and we had our band gear set up. Nobody ever bombed us, so we'd get away with murder. So I was in there, and I fucking, you know, everybody's smoking, like, the fucking 10th joint. I'm going, I don't feel anything, man. And everybody's blazing, and all of a sudden it goes, during the the slide-up of uh, on the bomber, on James Gang Rides Again, that's when I got my first rush, and it was it was like somebody punched me in the face. And I had to go <laughs> home an hour later. Purple red eyes. High as a kite. Didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, you know, 13, 14 years old. <laughs> my mom's like, what's with your eyes? I'm like, nothing. I get my friend's house. <laughs> Stupid shit like that. I mean, I listen, I'm telling these horrible stories. If anybody's going to see this, they're going to go, 
what a dick, you know what I mean? Oh, you were you were a kid. Speaking of which, you... up, all my friends were musicians. We all rehearsed. We all, you know, we, you know, we were all. I went home when I was supposed to go home. I, I love my parents. I had a, you know, I didn't have like some horrible childhood where I was. Be we weren't over rich or nothing like that, but we were. We Your were, parents got to see you succeed. Your parents got to see did. you. You know, and my my parents got to see their investment pay off. They were at the Grammys. They were at my first shows with Boz and. Boss was very gracious to me when I was young. That was a big deal for me to get that gig, you know, especially being so young. And your parents got to see Toto, yes. They got to see that. My old man was visibly touched, but she was a Marine, so he didn't really show his emotions that much. You know, mm -hmm. my mom saw him like, you know, he was like, "Wow, I had no idea the kid." You know, I played some solo, I got, a, you know, some good vibe from it, or whatever. Some sort of ovation, and then my my parents, my dad was just like, because he was always on the road. My mom was the one that kind of looked the other way at some of my, <laughs> you know, these were the days. My mom was very cool because she was nineteen years old when she had me, so she was playing wow. all in the house and everything like that. Some, yeah, I got all kind of crazy stories. Ask me something else. I'm talking too much. Okay, no, 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 no. Okay, so so you started playing music because before, even before you, the Beatles. From what I read in your no, book, the you weren't good at sports, but you weren't good at sports, right? So, like, I was terrible at sports. I was yes. terrible. I was bullied. I fucking, <laughs> you know, I was super small, super shy, and I, it was an easy mark. And I, and this is the days when you had to get on the school bus, and there was, a, there was one guy that would torture me every day for years. And if you got meet me at the flagpole at three o'clock because you're going to duke it out, you had to show up. Oh God! I hope that and you didn't rat well, anybody you know out. That you didn't guy's... rat anybody out. Yeah, but you know that guy lived to regret his his doings. <laughs> oh, whatever. This these were little smack around nothings. Nobody <laughs> was beating each other senseless. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be like one or two punches. Somebody gets a little bloody nose, and everybody's oh man, I'm sorry, I feel bad. And then you become friends with the guy. You know. Oh, that was good. like somebody That's pulls right. a knife or a gun now and blows your head off. I mean, you can't even make jokes about it. No. But I got to tell you, man, I didn't make the baseball team when I was young. I cried for a couple of days. You know, you get over it. No, you but wait a minute. There was a, a story in there the about you. And you with don't forget it, you know? No, but there was something about Little League with you that that ended up being part of your musical story. What happened with Little League with your dad? Oh, I was terrible at it. Yeah, but didn't you I mean, end up meeting? Myself. The, the, but the didn't you end up meeting? Didn't you end up meeting musicians or something in no, your little league team? The, the manager's son was a bass player, man, and he was two, two or three years older than me. Took a shine to me, and that was one of the first bands I was in because right. I was nine years old playing little league <laughs> in right field. You know, bouncing ball comes, you know, bounces, hits me in the nuts. I pass out. Everybody laughs. You know, God. this is like I wasn't going to be. I was going to be the next Sandy Colfax. Okay, now I'm dating myself. See, that was a star pitcher of the Dodgers in the '60s. Yes, but uh, you know, I, I I wanted to. Just the only thing I was ever good at at all was playing the guitar. You know. Okay, so wait. So now, how do you know that? So that that February night in 1964, I'm watching it. Everybody of our generation is watching it. You're sitting there in front of the television. The Beatles come on, and I and I read. I'll let you tell it, but. I was a George. That that's where my eyes went well, when the, the Beatles sound came on. Of the electric guitars is what got to me. The solo when I saw her standing there, there's something just went in my soul. Went on switch. I want to make that noise. And, and you, was, had not, you had not you had not played at all. You had not played at all. 
no, I didn't know how to do it yet. My parents thought it was cute. They bought me this terrible $5 acoustic guitar and, and meet the Beatles. And I still have the guitar. They made it into a lamp and gave it to me when I was 21 <laughs> after I'd already made it. You know, And so I still have it in the house. It reminds I me. I love of, that. That I actually like really had to struggle with this guitar and, you know, finally make sense of it. So, you know, in that moment, that's what you want to do. Well, you know, once I realized I could make some noise with it and I got with somebody else that could make some noise, like a drummer and a couple other guys, plug in these, some small little amps and we, and we could play a song together. And then we played at a birthday party and all the girls screamed. It was all over. I made a dollar, you know, just like <laughs> I was a millionaire, man, you know. And then it was over. And then we played the, the in 11, when I was 11, we played at the fifth grade graduation. And we played. I mean, I could sing and play. We we played the song, played electric guitars, you know, fuzz tone, and played Beatles songs, played some Foxy Lady and stuff. Yeah. And and the girls flipped out, screaming, and it was a big, huge thing. And the teachers were holding their ears. And I said, "This is what I'm doing for the rest of my life." I was done. And then I I, I thought before I realized, well, maybe I should learn how to study and stuff. I had my eyes set on. Well, I want to be a big rock star or something like that, whatever that meant at the time. So so at the beginning, you were just playing everything by ear? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it was very strange the way that worked out. I was and so what 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 was the defining line that said, okay, I'm gonna study. I'm I'm gonna learn how to do this. Well, there's <laughs> well, when I realized that you know, having a career as a musician was more than trying to be a rock star. You know, that's that was a more heady, more of a lofty ambition, if you will, rather than what sold my old man was this cool guy moved in next door to my parents' house who was a drummer. Mm -hmm. Like he was Helen Reddy's studio drummer uh, and and session, I mean, live drummer, and they owned the house and had a wife and a kid, and he wasn't famous. So my old man was like, Oh, okay, well, you mean you can own a house and have a family and not be some famous guy? Because my old man working with famous people all day long, not only was like bored to death with them, but it's like, I don't want my kid to be like that. I want him to have some substance in life. And he says, well, you're going to have to get him studying and all this. Other. I had a lot of other people say that it was time. And then then right as that happened, I met Steve Picaro in 10th grade and everybody was studying. And then it was like, we better do this if we want to do this. It was really hard to learn how to read music after playing for seven years. You know what I mean? It's like, oh gosh, because I, I bet stuff, you know. And and then it would be like I reading the notes. It was I had a great teacher, Jimmy Wobble, who was very patient with me. But uh, you know, we put the time. I stuffed 10 years of study into like three or four years, and then we started working, and that was the end of it. And so was it your was it your plan to be a session musician? no I, I well i didn't really know what it was and how cool it was until we got in high school and then i started reading the same names on great albums that i loved who is this larry carlton who is this dean parks who is this jay Graydon? who is this you know the list goes on really written hour who are all these guys and now they're all dearest friends i've ever had lifetime friends dean parks i mean, how many people i sit next to my buddy michael landau and i grew, came up together he's became a big studio guy we did a bunch of records together all the guys we came, grew up with you know made it in music in various different ways in our band then and not everybody was in total but everybody was in our high school band went off to be professional musicians and everybody did really really well and still doing well and so that was going on 
Jeff and and David were doing uh were were in Steely Dan. Why well, Jeff why... was, but I mean Dave was doing sessions and producing records and the Boss Gags album, Soaked and Green, oh, the, but... was really and... the catalyst that started the band idea. Because that so album that... became super successful. And Jeff and Dave went out and, and did some of the first leg of the tour. Then I did the second leg of the tour because we were just out of high school and stuff. Now, and... why would Boz hire some high school kid well i mean i was you know we weren't in high school jeff was three years older than me but right. i was out you know i was just turning 19 years old or i was 19 we started our first demos for toto in january 4th 1977 i was i just turned 19 okay but when you were playing with boss that was before that no no it was after that Oh, it was I, we that. did this demos and then there was another uh, leg of a tour Jeff was going to do and they were looking for another guitar player. Did and you audition for Boz? No, they just gave me the gig. They just gave you the well, gig. Well, here's what happened. I was playing <laughs> second guitar to Les Dudek, who was the lead guitarist at the time, because mm -hmm. he had played, you know, slide on some of this other stuff. He was a blues guy that Boz knew and was in his band before, but he had done a solo album. And he, they wanted me to play all the stuff that was more jazzy or whatever that was had the core. It was not. It was out of his wheelhouse. Well, after like day two, they had Boz and Les had a big argument. Les quit. So Boz goes up to Jeff and goes, "I think we got to get another guitar player." He goes, "No, you don't." And he points at me. He goes, let, "Let him play. Let him show you what he's got." And he, and he put, called off a tune, and I burned on it. And Boz laughed and said, well, I guess I don't need another guitar player. And I was the only guitar player, and that opened everything up for me. Wow. Wow. Okay, and so now Toto, how does that happen? That was, well, I, mean, I wanted to be in that band more than anything in the world because how much I revered Jeff and Dave and the music Dave was writing and that whole sound, that whole L.A. thing. I mean, I mean, well, they make fun of it now, called Yacht Rock or whatever the fuck it is, but... All it was was just that era of us all doing sessions. That was the music put in front of us, and we made those records. And now some smarmy asshole says something about that. There's a movie coming out about it that Chris Cross's uh, daughter made, which we're all in. It's just pretty kind of like, no, man, this is, let me tell you where this is really at, you know? It beats soft rock. I mean, that sounds like a limp dick bunch of blues <laughs> at that point, you know? I mean, I don't know why everybody has to put labels on everything. Music's music. People are people. Like what you like. Don't like what you don't like. But everything. I mean, how many subgenres of metal are there now? It's insane. Rock and roll used to just mean what that was. Now it's, what does that mean? Yeah, you, you guys took a lot of shit. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of shit. Why, why is that? People would make up story. Oh, we were put together in a boardroom. So we were high school buddies. What the fuck? Because we were good at a young age, they they found flaw. Well, being a studio musician was a deficit? You mean being a good musician is a bad thing? Would you like to have a punk rock doctor working on your brain tumor? <laughs> hey, I don't fucking know how to do this, but hey, give me a fucking soldering iron. We'll get this thing out of here. Just a barnacle on your brain, man. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean you know they uh, used to get this for many years but now <laughs> i'm I'm proud of being a studio musician i mean i i don't really do it anymore unless it's a favor or something i like or somebody else. jimmy off. page said something lovely to you about that once what? didn't he when when you met jimmy page didn't he say something lovely to you to well, that effect you know we went to this thing at guitar center of honoring um jimmy page 
-hmm. And I went with Eddie Van Halen and somebody else because Ed and I were dear friends. I miss him to tell. That one hurts. Um, you know, we went to this thing. It was a private event for Marshall was putting it on. And uh, I met, uh, it's funny, Nigel Tufnell, from, who was Chris Guest, was there in mm -hmm. character. as like. <laughs> but when we get there, you know, everybody's coming in. There's all the fabs from everybody. Every guitar player in L.A. was there. You know, we all going to buy. I came with Ed. You know, of course, I came with Ed. You, uh, everybody's like, okay. The, the C's part, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm with him. And then Jimmy Page points, and, and, he, and he goes like this, and I'm, think he's talking to Ed. I'm like, mm -hmm. goes, no, 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 you. I'm like, me. I'm sitting next to Ed. Going, <laughs> so he pulls me off the side and he goes, hey, man. I'm like, Jimmy, what? You're my hero. <laughs> it's so nice to meet you. What can I say? And he goes, no, I just want to say something to you. I read an article where you said that being a CD musician, you know, may have hurt your career in some way. And the fact that people don't take you seriously as a musician, he goes, that's not true. I was a student musician. He goes, all those guys in there, they don't know what that is. And I and I was like, are you serious? Are you, are you telling me this for real? He goes, yeah, I'm telling you this for real. And I go, I gave him a big hug and I looked and I go, can I tell people you said this to me? <laughs> he says, yeah. And I never really did. I mentioned it. I might have said something in the book, but I'm walking around with a t-shirt on about it. And I really haven't seen him since, but getting a thumbs up from somebody like that changed my whole attitude about all that because I was trying to compete with all the rockers at the time, whatever. It was a terribly insecure time in my life. I was I was successful, but I because I was playing on so many other kinds of records, I thought that I wasn't losing rock credibility, which what the was that mean? I was a working musician. How lucky was I? How lucky. I mean, How it would wonderful. be Aretha in the daytime and then Alice Cooper at night. And then it would be over here with Barbara Streisand and then it would be oh somebody God. else. And that was just in the day of the life of the war. You'd be doing, I'm working, I'm working on Boz's new record this week, or I'm doing this, I'm working with Elton over here. I'm working with, you know, I'm not trying to name drop to be an asshole, but it was a No, the list is unbelievable. How much of the time, you know, I, I saw on your on your discography, which literally is like a hundred pages long. Well, I didn't that, do that. They did that. Well, and that you I would work with complete, but that you would work with Jolyn Turner. I got so excited because you never see Jolyn's name anywhere. And of course, you didn't even meet him. How much of the time did you not meet the talent that you were um on a percentage level? I mean, most like time, most of the time, the talent was there. They were. I would say at least eighty percent of the time. Oh, cool! So there were you... things that I did, like when I did the skank part on Stand Back for Stevie Nicks. You know, they had tried David Williams and a few other guys that actually did the part on Thriller, mm -hmm. and they wanted this real skanky thing going over. And I didn't realize that Prince had played all the rest of the parts. You know. And it was a re done record, and they were starting to mix it, and they just didn't like. They had a couple guys try it, and I came in and listened, to it and I said, oh, "I know what you want." I go, "Plug me DI into here, put a little compression on this. Let's do this, and run the tape, and let me play something." And that first run through is the record. Wow! At the end of it, Jimmy Hyvene stuck his face. And he goes, "That's great, man. What do you want to eat?" <laughs> and I go, "Yeah, I want to be. I want to make producer money and do that for a living." You know? <laughs> I so mean, all right, was, you've you've no, told no, this. He was very nice to me. He was cool. I mean, he made yeah. it don't you know he, he was cool to me, man. I got I got no beef with anybody. I got to work with the best producers, best engineers, best studios, best artists, songs, being really creative. Yeah, there were some cheesy ones, of course. 
as a studio musician, you don't pick the material. You show up and go, no rehearsal, no demo. What are we doing? And a lot of times they just put a chord sheet in front of you with some rhythmic notation and count off the song. You better play something. But There's you no said something really funny in, in your book that I can't remember. It's something about something about the turds. What did, what did you call it? Oh, polishing With, the turds. Polishing the turds. Well, so there were a couple <laughs> songs that like, you know, people would go like, how do these people get a record deal? And they were never successful ones, but, but you didn't care. I mean, you get a call to do a week's worth of sessions. You took the sessions. And you gave them the best you had. You gave well, them. Well, but yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, we tried, and we love to make people happy to see their little simple acoustic song or piano song turn this. We all come up with all these parts, and then we start layering it and producing it. And by the end of the day, it sounds like a record. And the guys like, or the guy or the gal is like going, "This is fantastic," you know. Can you think of an example of something that? came to you as a little turd that ended up being something no, fantastic? No, because then I would have to admit what that is. And okay. Then, so I'm not oh, going to do that. shit. Okay. I won't make you do that. But that's... I'm not going to bag on it. No, I like, I like that you won't do it. Great. There's only a handful of kind of lame ones where you go, how did this person, are you serious? But you did it anyway. What's the what's your process? Uh, we were talking about Elton before and how you know Bernie hands him the lyrics. Well, it wasn't the... Bernie at the time. Um, oh, really? Else, but I was sitting there after dinner, and he had snuck down into the studio. We were living in this house, and you know, I just kind of sat. I saw him take the lyric sheets that he had gotten in the in the mail that day, in the post that day, or something, mm -hmm. whatever it was at the time. Yeah, and he just looked at him, and he put the lyric. He didn't know I was there. I was sitting in the darkness, in the in the. And I, was, I knew I was kind of spying on him, but but he was working, so it wasn't anything weird. I just wanted to see what he was going to do, and and, and mm -hmm. the great part was is that the piano and the vocal mic was already mic'd up and had a little bit of reverb. It was just sitting there. He didn't know, but it was in the control room. And I just, and I remember just, it was turned down low, so it wasn't obnoxious level or anything. I saw him put, take the paper, put it in front of him, stare at it for a minute, and just went, started singing. And that was the song. At the end of it, he had the, he had the whole song in one take. I was like, jaw dropped. I'm like, how could somebody be that talented? That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And he didn't know anybody was looking. I said to him, to him, I was a man, I saw that. It was, most, it was a beautiful song, too. I think it was called Blue Eyes. And it's one of his most lovely songs. He just oh. wrote it on the spot. It was, uh, well, how about for you guys? How about, like, this Bridges album that you wrote with Joseph and with, with we David? We showed up every day, but, like, we had nothing, and somebody had a riff, and we went from there. By the end of the day, we had a track pretty much flushed out with melody ideas, a lyric idea, and then we worked on it. What comes first usually? Music, groove. Mm -hmm. Somebody might have a title that might, but this this album was just done. Uh, you know, what do you got today? Or I had a piece of something, you know, that I I don't have a recording studio in my house. I just have this phone that, like, if I have a good idea, I press record. Then I go to somebody else's house or the studio. I like the separation between home and work. You know, good for you. So speaking of which, you're on the road a lot, like more than half the year, right? You're you're out there. Yeah, I got the schedule for next year. It's pretty scary. I did like 200 days this year, and I'm, and I'm heading out Sunday for another month before I come home on Christmas Eve, and then next year starts January 4th and ends in November. 
So just a, like a, a few weeks here and there off. And so how does that, how is your life, how is your life, I how is your no life, life different? <laughs> I have no when you, life. When no, you're I on don't. the road, what's a day like when you're on the road? Well, I don't hang out anymore. I don't go out anymore. I go to bed early after, you know, I have something to eat after the show, hang out, have a laugh, and then I go to sleep. I'm usually gone, you know, by 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night if we're going on early. If not, then, you know, midnight. And then they wake my ass up when we get to the hotel. It could be anywhere between 4 and 7 a.m. And uh, we sleep again and do it. It's Groundhog Day. You know, in another arena the next day. Or, which is great. But, I mean, you stay out for three months at a time. It changes you as a person. So and how I'm about when you're home? I'm allowing what... myself to be out six weeks at a time now. Okay, that's good. And what about when you're home? What's your day like when you're home? I hide, man. I hide in my house. I, t I get up five in the morning. I take my daughter ice skating at six. We spend time together, have a little breakfast. I come home. I do all the management work because I manage the band too. And, uh, you know, so we're doing, always doing all this stuff. I'm, I practice, you know, I still sit here and get up and play. I'm learning some old stuff because we've changed the set list up for next year. It's got some great stuff we've never played live before. Plus the stuff we got to play. And we have a long show and a short show. And, you know, I'm just putting all that together and getting ready to go out and work. And I'm just hanging out with my kids and maybe grab a bite with a, with a friend once in a while. But otherwise I stay in my house, hiding behind my walls and stay to myself. I'm afraid of the world out there. I got messed around really bad this year. I had a little... I don't want to get into it. It was really terrifying and you know, trying to shake me down for money and threaten my life and make lies about me to ruin my reputation and my career. It was very scary and managed to get the FBI involved. Oh, I'm so away. sorry. Um, evil, evil people that took advantage of me, pretending uh, to be my friend and all that. But you know what? That's Welcome to fucking Hollywood, you know? Um, I don't wish anybody harm. Just leave me alone. That's all I got to say. I'm, you know, people, you know, the, the weird vibe about us with people is over. I mean, kids dig us. Right? We have a three three generation audience. Mm -hmm. and the people that really hated us the most, they're like, you know, 85 years old, still trying to like, you know, eke out a living with the hipster magazines or something. You know what I mean? They don't matter. And they haven't hurt my career. They haven't helped me. They haven't hurt me. It just pisses them off that we're successful. If they look at our numbers, our streaming numbers, which are fantastic, 3.5 billion streams, you know, not bad. And that's only in the last eight and a half years. Crazy. 45 million records sold, and we're still doing it. We've had, I had, I had a rock jam in the 80s in the village in New York, and the number one song that was played every night no, hold the line. I mean, the number one song, jam song, like well, on know, every stage in New York. There, man. You know, I, I don't know why. I mean, it, it, I mean, it makes me smile. I'm happy about it, but I mean, I don't obsess about it either. But, uh, in the, the truth is, it's just. It's baffling. I'm nobody's. I'm just like, wow. We've got this. Like, we've got a third act now. We're able to go out and do this. And like, you know, we were scared. We went to Australia and they put us on in the festivals because Africa was going crazy. I mean, like and all these kids, right? So we go out there. We're watching everybody before us. Is, it's all just on Pro Tools. They're up there, kind of just faking them. Mm -hmm. People are digging it, and we're just going. And we're looking around, going, "They're gonna hate us, man." <laughs> 
They're going to hate us. And we went out there and we played live. And we ripped our rock and roll shit. And by the time we got to Africa at the end, man, they went lost their mind. It was one of the greatest <laughs> ever. And it happened all across Australia. And all of a sudden, all of the arena shows sold out immediately. They were doing okay, but then just put it over the edge. And we haven't been back in a while because of the pandemic and all. We're trying to get back there either this year or the beginning of next year. I heard you didn't think that Africa was going to be a, a hit. What? You didn't, I heard you didn't think Africa was going to be a hit. No. no. <laughs> I didn't get it. I love the track. Mm-hmm. We made this record as a production thing. I mean, we had four 24-track tape machines in sync, which was unheard of at the time in 1981. We, were, we cut that song in 1981. It came out in 82. And you know, lived through 83, 84. But, um, yeah, we just did this. We cut this track, and we made all this big, and we knew the melody was, but we didn't know what the lyrics were. And when the lyrics came in, it was like, Dave, what? And I just said, well, I mean, it's a quirky little song. We buried it at the end of the album. We never thought much of it. And then it became a hit in 1983. It was the number one record. We're like, how the fuck did that happen? Rosanna did great for us. We all, you know, And we thought that was our the way our band sounds if i had to pick one song say that's a pretty good representation everybody shines in it and all that but that was a long time ago still love to play it live and people love the song and that's fine but you know like i said we have 400 other songs too you know and we try to sneak some of that in for the people that really know all the music and come out Mm -hmm. to our headline shows and stuff like that so okay, so what I lo- one of the things that I love about your book is that you're so um, honest and and humble and and human about your own um, like fanboy stuff, you know, about meeting George and meeting Paul and and yeah, all of that well, stuff. You, know, you never lose that. And so, do I mean, you... Ring, I mean, for example, I mean, Ringo's. I mean, I'm not gonna say this sounds weird, but we become very, very close friends. I adore this man. We live close to each other. We hang out. I was listening to now and then, you know, when you know, watching the video a little bit, and he FaceTimes me. I'm like, oh, this is really surreal, man. And you know, I, I'm just, I love. I've been in the band going on 12 years now. We're gonna do some work next year, and. I always get to write and play on the albums with them. And, you know, over the last 12 years, it's been the best 12 years, 11 years of my life. I was just going to say, are you having as much fun as we're having watching you do it? I mean, I I went recently. I and mean, it was... I love this. I just have to be the guitar player, man. And I get to be 10 different guitar players. And eh, the hang is great. The people involved are great. The, the, so now how long has it been it's the best. how long how long has it been this band because it used to be that there it well i've been there lot. for um it'll be 12 years starting next year but um there have been people that have come and gone i've been a, me and greg bissonette have been there the longest and guys but, have come and gone but this but like know, john Waite was telling me like that, that was before that it. was before my time and back when he did it like ringo would have like front men from a bunch of different bands and john was saying it was kind of a problem because everybody was kind of waiting for their spotlight and it didn't that's really feel difference. like a band that's the difference between those guys because they those guys none of them were really players that worked on lots of other people's records and stuff they were played their own music well and right. had ability to play but they didn't for me i mean i was in like what what's the problem anything goes what do you want to play right. 
I'd learn the parts, try to get the right sounds, you know, play it like the record. I enjoyed the, the process of it. And I can morph into anything at any time. So this band, everybody cares about everybody else's music. I enjoy playing their music more than I enjoy playing my own. <laughs> you know what I how mean? Fun. So, so how did you so how me, did you how did you meet Ringo? Um well I got the call through Greg Bissonette and Dave Hart, who's the uh agent and director of, or producer of the shows and you know i got recommended to do it and, I, and like i had worked with paul and george before mm -hmm. uh and i don't know i asked jim keltner and said jim put in a good word for me greg bissonette dave hart and and R richard page had some nice shit about me and they know me but uh i don't think anybody else is involved in it at all and, and know, did you and ringo, and ringo hit it off right from like the Ringo has to like the music that he's going to play. He has to like right. it. And, you know, we kind of hit it off right away. And by the end of the first tour, we we're buddies. And I I just, I can't say enough great things about him. I mean, he's one of the most, the best vibe person. I mean, he just, he loves what he does. And, and if you see him having fun, you can't go, oh, I, 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 I'm an old guy. I don't feel good today. It's like, the guy's 83 years old. And doing jumping jacks on stage, you know what I mean? Unbelievable. And, you know, he's just, he's an inspiration as a human being to be around. I really love the guy. I would do anything for him. I love Barbara. I love the whole family. Um, The whole community they have, all their, man, you know, all the staff and management. And they're friends of mine. They're people that I adore. It's wonderful. And I, like I said, I cherish that relationship as much as, you know, as much as one can, you know. You told a really sweet story about um, when you met Paul and that he was shy and uncomfortable. Well, we met Paul during the Thriller sessions. That was the first Beatle I got to make. We, we were cutting the Quincy called me and Jeff and Paige and a bunch of the cast to play on the first song, which was the duet between Michael and Paul McCartney. Wait, wait, you tell a, you tell a different story in your book. You got a phone call to play. Well, no, that, that was... Um, you know, I got a call from Michael, yeah, but I didn't believe it was him because it was like 1981 and or you know, 82 at eight in the morning. I was just going to bed. And what'd you do? I hung up on him. Yes, you Told did. The fuck off, hang up. Don't who the which one of my fucking loser friends is this? <laughs> Boom, hang up. Five minutes later, the phone comes back. Ah, it's Michael. I'm going, oh man. <laughs> And then I started grilling him. Oh, yeah, you're Michael. How about this? And I was like all hungover and shit. You know, <laughs> I hang up on him again. About two hours later, I get a call from Quincy's office going, yeah, it was Michael. You should probably call him back. <laughs> so I call back the number and he freaking answers it. I go, hey, Michael, it's Steve Lugan, man. I'm sorry. I I, you know, I, I thought it was a joke. And he goes, ah, I get that all the time. Like, okay, well. Oh my God! We ended up doing, uh, you know, "Beat It" and "The Girl Is Mine" and "Human Nature," which was Steve Carell's song. And yeah. so, so Paul, he was shy with Paul, you. Paul, no, but like you know, we're sitting in the studio. We get there early, and me and Jeff are all sitting in the studio. The control room's a cacophony with all the people, even Dick Clark and the cameras, and it was like this whole thing. Mm. And it was it was 1982, so it was only a couple of years after John was tragically, you know, murdered. And so there's a lot of paranoia about 
them him and Linda being out. Linda, who's by mm-hmm. the most fantastic woman ever. Anybody wow. that ever said anything about her, never met her. Wow. She's warm, wonderful, hilarious. Wow. Great mom. No nannies. You know, she was hands-on with everybody. And just lovely. And I was up on a stand with her, so I got a chance to hang out with her the most. Nice uh, to know. Until we started hanging out for lunch every day with me, Jeff Picaro, Paul, Linda, George Martin, and Jeff Emmerich, where I was able to ask every geeky Beatle question in the world. But um, no, no, Michael, I didn't believe it was him. Man. So, okay, so one, I have two more questions, and I'm gonna let you go. So you met, you got to meet George, who was your well. Very I met first George guitar. by accident in a nightclub after we came back after Jeff's tragic passing in '92. We went out by the grace of God and did a three month tour to promote the album Kingdom Desire, with the last record we did with him. And Simon Phillips came in and played drums, which was a godsend because he wasn't emotionally involved in it. He was a great drummer, didn't try to play like Jeff. Mm-hmm. It was hardest for Mike to turn around and go, Where's my brother playing bass and all that? You know, and we lost Mikey too. Um, it was tragic. ALS with a brutal disease that is cruel. Anyway, long story short, um, where, where was I? George, <laughs> you're talking about George, oh, meeting George. Yeah. I went to a nightclub. We'd come home after that tour, and I was single, and I went out looking looking for trouble on a Thursday, Friday night, or whatever. Showed up at this club called The Gate, which isn't there anymore in Hollywood, and I walked in, and there was rumblings that George Harrison was there. I said, and I went into the bouncer. I said, look, I don't want to bother the guy. I just want to say a quick hello, thank you, and I'll go piss off. And they went up to George, and George looked over and motioned me over like you know yeah man i know like i know that i know who you are and i was like me <laughs> sat down with him you know i ordered a drink hung out and i just said look i'm gonna stay for i just wanted to thank you for my life and my career because i wanted to be you the sound of your guitar on my son I, and i started naming up all the songs he played on not the ones that paul played on because they right were, and you know, and I was funny, and I was, and I, and I had a couple of drinks, and we so I was loose, but I wasn't obnoxious. And you know, I hung out and spent a few hours with him. I said, "Hey, look, man, we're playing two nights from now at the amphitheater, doing a dedication for our brother Jeff, who passed away, and Eddie Van Halen's going to be there, Donald Fagan, Don Henley, Bob Skaggs, Michael McDonald, David Crosby, James Van Howard. I mean, the list goes on and on, and." I said, I'll leave a couple tickets. I know we're playing a little help from my friends at the end, just in case. <clears throat> and I and I knew I just walked out and I, I, I gave him, I said, thanks. And we exchanged numbers. It was really wacky. <clears throat> and I didn't think nothing of it. So I'm backstage at the gig and I'm, we're all emotional. It's a big deal. And we're sitting around the piano figuring out who's going to sing one bit on this one last song. So everybody can sing a line and we all come together, get by with a little good message, great song. When we did a Joe Cocker style, like Leon Russell, Joe Cocker. All right. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting at the piano at the amphitheater in LA, and I get this thing. Somebody's here to see you. I go, dude, what do you think I'm doing right now? He goes, no, somebody's here to see you from Liverpool. I went, what? And we had everybody in the room. I mean, Fagan, I mean, they're all the biggest fucking stars of the time. And he walks into the room with dead silence. It was like Aww. musical royalty had arrived. And he was, and he, the first thing he says, he was, bet you didn't think I was going to show up, did you? 
said, no. I said, but man, we're playing this song. Uh, I, uh, you know, a little help from my friends. And I go, grab one of my guitars. He grabs my old Les Paul. And I start saying, yeah, but we're doing the Joe Conker version. <laughs> he laughed. And he goes, I start playing. And in the brain goes, that's not how me and the lads used to play. <laughs> There's great pictures of me, him, and Eddie Van Halen playing together. Oh. And beaming, you know. And, you know, he was so lovely. And, like, uh, this show was spectacular. I mean, it was flawless. Mm. And Jeff must have been smiling down from heaven. And then the last thing is like, oh, yeah, we have one last guest who was unannounced. They go, oh, there's a special friend of mine here, who, oh, my hero, and I can't believe he's going to be here. This is blow Jeff's mind, blow our mind. Ladies and gentlemen, George Harrison. And I, you know, they had been screaming for us before, but it was like, this was like Beatlemania screaming. He walked on stage and it was just like, oh, Holy shit. And I'm sitting there smiling, going, wow, this is a moment. And after that, we became friends. He would call me all the time. We have dinner. Maybe wow. we have a jam with, you know, with Bob Dylan. We had dinner with Bob Dylan, Jeff Lynn, you know, Keltner, and me. And we went up to Jeff Lynn's house and had a jam. You know, it was like wow. We got to be like almost like a Wilbury for a night. You know, it was really the coolest thing ever. And we hung out a whole bunch until he and then he he got stabbed and moved back, and I lost touch. Jim Keltner would say, "George sends love and blah 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 blah." You know. I didn't want to bother him, and then he got cancer and then disappeared and passed away. So he turned me on to TM. He took me down to the center. I mean, we wow. did. I spent time hanging out with him. Wow! He took me to my house in a beat up VW, which cracked me up. Wow! I you know I go out and I meet him and I, and I go, George, what's the ride, man? I mean, this is an old piece of shit. <laughs> He goes, ah, but they only think I look like him. In other words, like they won't bother. Go, that wouldn't think that guy looks like George Harris, but it can't be. Look at that car. You know what I mean? And so he was doing wow. it for anybody. Now a lot of famous people do that. Wow. And he was one of the first. Wow. And he came to my house and I took him up to meet Slash because Danny, his son, wanted to meet Slash and Slash and their old friends. And, uh, it, it was just, you know, uh, while I could go, I took him to Capitol Records when the Red and Blue album came out. I was working on my second solo album. I drove him in the back of my car. He was in the back of my Porsche. We drive into Porsche. And, and they had life size, not beyond life. They had like the size of Capitol Records building, you know, effigies of all four guys, you know, for the Red and Blue Beatles record. Wow. And he goes, oh, my God. He was like completely like, what the hell is that? Such a humble, beautiful cat. And then when I met Ringo, see, I really wanted to be in Ringo's band because I thought it would I would be a really good asset to the band. I'm just what they want. I can play anybody's stuff. Right. Things. And, you know, I have a bit of history with the other guys. I thought that might help. And we, you know, and uh, we did that. And he, and he met me and we hit it off and the band was great. A lot of great players. And we had a blast. And they kept asking me back and asking me back and asking me back. And then we started becoming really great friends. Like off the gig. You know, come over and let's go have dinner. Let's shoot the shit. Or he played on some stuff for me. I always play on stuff for him. <clears throat> you know, it's just it's makes me super happy to be have that relationship and be involved in, with him. I love that your life has come full circle that this little boy who was watching Ed Sullivan 
with the well, jury. Well, you know, that humbles me. I mean, it's it's an incredible slap upside the head going, you punk-ass motherfucker. You fucking just sat there in the middle of North Hollywood going, I'm going to be like, I want to be like those guys, and I've worked with three of the four of them. Okay, yeah, so now my... Me, like, you know, 60 years later, I am doing this, you know. So now my last question for you, Steve, is do you realize, and I know you realize, how many people you are that guy for now? You know oh, that, right? No, I, no, no, I, no, no. I'm, I'm still yeah, all... don't, don't. All right, you can be all humble and shit, but, well, I just but it's true. It's silly to say it. You know I mean? I can't. I've been around a long time. Believe me, I understand that. I've had a tremendous career that I could never put into words how much it means to me how honored i am i mean i'm I'm not the fastest gun in the west i ain't the greatest in the world but i happen to be the right guy at the right time for a lot of different things and i parlayed that into a great career so um for that alone i'm very honored you know but i i, I mean if people well, well, how, how do you react when 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 guys come up to you and and i'm sure there are women too who come up to you and tell you that they started playing you know my stepson well, I mean, wrote me nice. said, i mean especially now i mean people are a lot nicer now than they ever were which is kind of different for me it's only kind of humorous when i'm out to lunch with my 16 year old daughter who's a little bit more oblivious to what i i mean she knows what i do she's come on the road she has a great time but it's just she always asks me the same question do you know that guy and you go, no, i don't but they're hey man they're nice to me i'm nice to them you know but but do you take the, have you mentored anyone like do you you've had such you've had these experiences with your heroes like with with Ringo with George so when you meet a young player who you've impacted that way do you take the time for them do you yeah, well, I have a son that plays you know mm-hmm. he's mad at me right now but <laughs> that was not fun um no, I've taken him, but you know, he, I at the same time, you know, he's followed his own path. He didn't want to learn how, you know, to, the nuts and bolts of music, you know, the reading and the harmony and theory and all. He's forging his own way as a record producer, writer, and player. And he's got a great new band called The Effect, with Phil Collins' son playing drums, Nick Collins, and they've got some incredible stuff. So if you want to check them out. I know Jules Galley uh, sang in my a, living room. A video room. that just came out is the first teaser from their upcoming record. It's called uh, Unwanted. Check it out. The effect. YouTube, I will. I saw Spotify, another video of his called... Um, Very impressive. They did it all in-house, you know. It's great that's band. excellent. Great players, great singer. That's excellent. Well, you are... Um, you're 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 like a lovely like you're like you're like a guy you're like a regular you know you're a rock star but you i have a regular guy that somehow stole b arthur's hair (laughs) you know some people think this fucking but who would buy a wig that looks like this is my eccentric old man i don't care anymore i really like it i I really like it black about a year ago and then you know then it became it's good. I don't want to asshole this. I'm, you know, I look at. I'm in the back nine of sixty now. I'm sixty six years old. If you don't, if you like what I do, thank you. If you don't like what you do, change the channel. If you don't like it, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of different great music out there for you. But I'm doing the best I can. I'm having a ball. I still can't believe I've had this long career because that's all I ever wanted was a long career. You know, there are all the bumps in the road, and there were plenty of hills and valleys in my career. 
but you hang on for dear life and then you get to a certain point where people give you a little respect and that's what we're getting right now and i do appreciate it no sarcasm involved Lots i mean there's always going to be a couple a handful of hipster people that just hate us because they're supposed to <laughs> or they really don't like the music which is fine you don't like the music that's great but you don't have to like you know wish my parents dead and shit oh like, the worst review we ever got is that our parents should have been sterilized so we could never play the shit music that we like. oh my lord which wow. i made into a t-shirt more often <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well, well, well hey man well. you know if i'm gonna strike a nerve i might as well enjoy it you know <laughs> Uh, well, Lou, thank you so, so much for thank doing you. this. No, you I'm are so fun. Everybody. I'm sure I can. Not at it's all. It's actually going out streaming and you're going to get comments on this. I can just imagine. What a dick. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I hope I get to meet you in person soon. Absolutely. And uh, you tell your boyfriend, Snuffy, that I love him. I will. He's a great will guitar do. player, a great writer, and a great pal. And God bless you. Thank you for asking. Thank I'll see you, you around, Vic. Take care, Luke. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.